Hello and welcome to the Rebooted Open Fire podcast sponsored by Franklin Risk Management Services, a new series of podcasts focusing on the fire safety industry and tackling the current issues facing responsible persons in the commercial and residential sectors. I've got to say, Tom, um, we're now towards the end of the second series. I'm we not, are. I think we need to rewrite that introduction because... It's not really rebooted anymore. It's just the Open Fire podcast, isn't it? It is. We rebooted it because we had a couple of months off, didn't we? We did. Um, but this is our penultimate episode of the series. It uh, is. Episode nine, if, if I've if I've done my maths correctly. Yeah, and then next week is the sum up of the series, ready for Christmas. So what are we, um, without introducing our guests just yet, what are we going to be talking about today? So I... We had a podcast, in fact, it was the first podcast of the series where Russ Timpson of the Tall Buildings Fire Safety Network yep. sort of pontificated about what the future of fire safety might be like in high-rise buildings. Um, and he made some statements, which some of us agree with and some of us didn't agree with, um, and in particular, the notion that potentially other countries in the world are getting fire safety a lot, um, getting it right a lot more than we are. Um, and I thought, who do I know that might be able to actually give us some answers around the way they do it around the world? Um, and I suppose in terms of introducing our next guest, I thought I'll bring in my pal Mario Lara Lederman, who's a fire engineer who's done fire engineering all over the world. Hello, Mario. Hello, Tom and Dave. Thanks for having me. So, Mario Lara Lederman, um, last episode we agreed that um, it was unusual to have two um, surnames, such beautiful surnames. Got to be said. Uh, is there? What's the? What's the reason for the two surnames? Is it just showing off, Mario? No. What happens is in in South America, in Chile specifically, where I'm from, um, you usually take the surname of your grandfather from both sides. So Lara is my dad's or my dad's father's uh, surname, and Leatherman is my mum's father's surname. So yeah, you keep both. I think I like I like that. I might start calling myself. Hang on, I'd have to work it out. Yeah, no, that would sound bad. Actually, Dave Ferguson, Grant <laughs> Calvert. No, awful. Do your children take Lara Leatherman and you kind of go Western with that, or have they taken your dad's name and your? Well, because I, I married an Aussie, uh, a girl from Australia, um, and we lived in Australia for eight years. Um, we made the decision of, you know, following the Aussie tradition, which is pretty much um, the wife and the kids take the husband's surname. Yeah. So my okay. kids are Lara Lederman, and also is my wife. So yeah. you are literally they got the hyphenated most... though, so they got a little line, oh, okay. which I don't. Yeah. In my case, that's why everyone calls me Mario Lederman, and they think I've got a girl surname <laughs> or middle name, yeah, because it's Lara. But yeah. So anyway, uh, Tom, we are here to talk about fire safety. We um, are. Yeah, without um, not just international relations. Yeah. Um, what uh, fire news have we got this week? I don't know. We haven't got any because Lucy, our news correspondent, is still on holiday. She is still on holiday. One more week of holiday to go. In Where is Mauritius. she? She's in Mauritius. Is she? Yeah, yeah. I think you're paying her too much, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Not our podcast um, budget. So gone. we haven't got any news this week uh, okay. for the second week running because Lucy wanted a two-week holiday. However, um, we have had a slight rearrangement with um, the... Um, podcast um, format, Okay, and you might have noticed that um, due to um, the overwhelming feedback we've had, yes. the disclaimer has been moved to the um, back of the podcast. Right. But I've got a question for you. Yes. Do you know who records our 
disclaimer. And because it's tucked away at the podcast, I'm guessing a lot of our listeners won't have heard it. Haven't heard it, but I think they might be. They're going to listen to it now, aren't they? Do you know who it is? So I do, but I don't want to spoil your thunder. So just ask me that question again. Okay, so you're not spoiling my thunder because I can't remember his name. However, I think we should ask our producer, Gareth. So I'm just looking behind me into the booth. And Gareth, um, just just remind me who who we've um, recruited for the disclaimer. Dapper Dave from the Chris Chris Evans Evans breakfast show. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And I think he's done quite a few other... What else has he done, Gareth? The Mercedes Man. advert. Man on the Mercedes ad. And, and the, the Highland, Highland Springer. I think we're going up in the world with this podcast. We are. We've got international guests now with Mario. We have. We sponsor a race car. We've got Dapper Dave. Dapper sponsor Dave. the race car. No wonder we can't afford to do more episodes than 10 a series, eh? I've actually put um, a photograph of our sponsored race car onto our... Open Fire Podcast webpage now, so awesome. people, people can actually uh, believe us. Yeah, go and check it out, and maybe we could get that photo to link to your friend's webpage, who's the racing driver, right? I don't know racing drivers necessarily have their own webpages, do they? Well, I think everyone has, Dave. It's just you that hasn't. Yeah. Are you just going to be Dave now, after we now know about Dapper Dave? I, I'm not the same Dapper Dave. I know you're looking at me thinking... <laughs> Thinking that must be me, but it's not. You are. I thought it was one of those, like you know, like Little John is actually really big. You know, Dapper Dave is really poorly dressed. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Dangerous Dave is. I feel like we're veering far away from fire safety in this episode. So I'm going to get it back on track because we have got five questions, and just to just remind everyone who may have just decided to fast forward all of that diatribe nonsense that we've just gone through. This this episode is about trying to identify international standards and whether the way we do things in England is really, really clever, really, really dodgy, or what we could learn. So are we saying the UK is behind the curve or ahead of the curve? curve. Okay, so um, to bring you into the conversation, uh, Mario, and to some extent, Anthony, what are the fundamental differences between UK standards, NFPA codes, Australian standards, the standards in South America, etc. And I think it's fair to say we're just focusing on residential, right? Because we appreciate we do things very differently here. So in terms of residential, um, what the fundamental difference is, Mario? Um, well, I mean, my view, and obviously it's up for discussion here, um, I've, I think that the framework of fire safety is pretty much the same everywhere. Okay. It comes from all the f- same fundamentals the same principle, the same scientific background, right? Mm-hmm. It's the way how individual jurisdiction might deal with um, codes and, 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 and compliance, really. Some some countries adopt a much more performance-based approach to fire safety. Some others are, are much more prescriptive. I guess that, in, in essence, creates a massive change in the way how things might be designed because of the way that the compliance is approached. Yeah. So do you think around sort of the stay put strategy specifically in, in the UK, um, that that isn't a normal way of managing buildings internationally, is it? Or, or sorry, it's perceived not to be so. I think it's perceived because when you look at some international ways of uh, designing buildings, uh, residential buildings in particular, you always have some elements of stay put. Yeah. Right. So you always have uh, usually the the fire alarm will go off in your apartment only mm-hmm. unless you know the smoke gets to the the corridor and then triggers you know the the, the house alarm all out kind of um, state. So you still have some elements of stay put. Perhaps it's not as explicit by saying oh we have a stay put strategy, but you still have 
those sort of elements that's you know follow the same principles and and coupled with obviously the design of walls fire resistance and how we can the aim is to contain the fire within individual apartments in some of these jurisdictions obviously varies we've seen the, the example of italy perhaps where the state put is, is totally not there yeah but again that's not something that someone tells you this is the way we deal with things in italy you have to dig into the the, the standards and the and, and the way things are done over there yeah. Would you would you think that over here we rely quite heavily on compartmentation, um, which obviously puts a requirement on the building being built correctly, whereas I think around the world they're probably less reliant on compartmentation and rely on more active systems, like like you said, like a simultaneous evacuation once the fire reaches a certain location. Um, I think that's quite, that's quite a common... Yeah, uh, I, I think to some extent every building code or any international standard will rely to some extent in compartmentation because it's one of the fundamental elements in our design. Um, but the, the extent to, to compartmentation is how much we rely on it, yeah, it will vary. I guess yeah. in the UK, we very heavily rely on compartmentation quite a lot in residential apartments. Yeah. Right? The if more you, you rely on it, the more likely, if it fails, you're going to get something catastrophic to happen. Absolutely. I mean... <laughs> Obviously, fire safety as, as a design element is a, it's a number of different systems that need to work with each other. If one fails, the other one you know, needs to cop and uh, take on. But if you rely so much on compartmentation, obviously you are making, you have to make sure that all passive elements are well designed and, and delivered. So otherwise you might end up in a very, very bad situation. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of, um, and to a certain extent, Tom, this is a question for yourself as well in terms of international. I mean, Tom, we've known each other for a long time. We've worked together at different yeah. companies. Um, and when we go back to sort of 15 years, when we were both working at Goldman Sachs with the brilliant Colin Basnet. Yeah, we were um, international jet setters we, then. we were, and we, we were allocated various offices. Uh, I know you did... Um, I had Madrid, Paris, Madrid, Geneva Barcelona, and yeah. Zurich. I had Moscow and Dubai, which were by far more exotic yeah. um, because... Um, I, you know, Colin obviously preferred me in that respect. Yeah. To yourself. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we got to get Colin on the. Colin would be uh, in my top three bosses ever. I, I could name my top three bosses. I quite. think you've only had three. Uh, no, no, I've had more than that. I okay. think you should name them. Do it. I, I would happily, in, uh, in no particular order, but it'd be Colin Basnet. Yeah. Uh, it's a long list. Sue Morris. <laughs> Sue Morris. Sue Morris and um, Sue Morris of SMMS, which is no longer SMMS anymore. Yeah. So we can mention them. And of course, John Powell at Frankham. Lovely. I'll shove out your for bum. A, for a second, I Absolutely. thought he wasn't going to say John No Powell. way I would not mention John. <laughs> <laughs> because I know he listens. Um, yeah. But my point being... That, uh, <laughs> I'll be honest, it should have been me on that list. <laughs> do you feel disappointed now, Tom? I do. Now, you, you, you wouldn't even be no. uh, number four. Tom. Thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so my question was: so w when we were going to these satellite offices, yeah, and it all, albeit commercial, that the general feeling that sort of time. So we thought in two thousand five, two thousand six, I think yeah. we were there. Um, it, there was a choice between UK standards, NFPA standards, or Australian standards, and they were the three main ones that um, sort of areas yeah. that didn't have their own firm set of standards would use. Yes, w would you say that's still the case, or of the, of, of more local local areas got their more sort of got their, their, their act in order in terms of their own set of So, so the, at the time, there was definitely... So I think when you came out of the UK and went then outside of continental Europe, most countries would use the NFPA codes. 
that was generally w- what people used. Um, I think there there are now better standards globally than just where people just say we'll have the NFPA. But you've got to remember in certain countries, take the United Arab Emirates, for example, they weren't building tall until probably 10 years ago. So they didn't have any standards to cope with anything of that nature. So the, where, where do you go to build tall? Well, actually, you'd look at America, right? Because they've got more high-rise buildings than anyone else. Um, so, yeah, I think the codes were... NFPA or as as Goldman Sachs at the time, we used UK standards in continental Europe to make sure that all of our staff when they went to Europe would get were afforded at least the same level of safety from a fire perspective as you would expect in London. And the same would apply to health and safety standards. So we applied the UK health and safety standards globally at Goldman Sachs at the time to make sure every occupant was safe. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that if you were an employee in the UK and you went somewhere else and something happened to you, you would be judged to the UK health and safety standards. You wouldn't be judged to local standards because they're an employee of you in London. Um, I don't know what you think about that, Mario, and whether that's changed sort of within the last year, two years or whatever. No, I, I would agree. I mean, um, NFPA is widely used. I think in, in places like South America, they, they fall back to NFPA as one of the standards to follow. And if you look even in Asia, um, a lot of the British standards are taken or used, you know, uh, from a fire safety perspective. I know Malaysia and some some parts of, you know, the Middle East, they follow British standards um, to not only design, but even, you know, to conduct tests on on passive fire protection elements and so forth. So yeah. I, know I would agree quite, with that. So if you go to like the Middle East now, you can, have, you, you can go in and they've got, You've got the NFPA codes, you've got the building code, and then you've got, like, I don't know, Saudi building code as well. And yeah. They've all got their own. It could be really complicated working in those countries because there's about six or seven different standards you may need to yeah. refer to because certain ones override certain ones Absolutely. in certain areas. But the interesting thing, of course, is that the functional part of the building regulations, ultimately to provide a building that's safe in the event of a fire, yeah. if that's generally global, which it is, then ultimately the standards deliver you, from a country's perspective safety from a fire perspective well so 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 mario and this is an opinion question so you know um i don't mean to put you on the spot but in your opinion does does the rest of the world i mean there there is a sort of a speculation in the press obviously there's always a good yeah. story and a bad news story but does the rest of the world actually do fire safety better than the uk in your opinion or actually is it just we hear about the bad news in the uk more often yeah i think it's the latter we hear more the bad news in the UK uh, because, again, the, the framework is not only the framework of design, the framework how you deal with fire safety in general is quite similar. Yeah. So we kind of fall, fall into the same mistakes or we, we take the good bits of, you know, different countries, I guess. But um, in general, I think it's, it's more uh, evident uh, here in the UK because of, you know, issues like Renfield, the, the gaps or, or the the problems with fire safety get exposed. Yeah. I mean, you look at, at Australia, for example, in, in 2015, there was a fire there in the Lacrosse building, um, which was the, the, the one of the few or the first fires that were, you know, um, that went around the world because it was yeah. an ACM uh, facade. facade, right? So that exposed a lot of gaps and, and issues in Australia, but perhaps because no one died, there was no uh, real urgent 
urgence yeah. to really, you know, create a change. They always, they, they were very, very active in Australia to start, you know, creating that change. Um, but because then Grenfell happened, I believe now perhaps the UK has taken actions quite quicker in a, in a way, perhaps going ahead of so, the response so, so from the building on that, what, what are the sort of changes in, in the advent of uh, Grenfell? which you mentioned, what, what are the type of changes that we need to see happen in the UK to, to, to make buildings safer? Where should we be going? Well, I think I kind of agree with the recommendations that came from the Hackett's um, review. And that's, uh, it's not just about regulation, it's not just about uh, individual ways of designing. I think it's about a, a change of um, culture and the way how we, we yeah. approach fire safety. So it's a regulatory framework kind of change rather than the regulation itself. So obviously, if if you follow the the, the recommendation from Hacking, the, the principles are you know better governance, responsibility, making fire safety in a way one of the core disciplines within the built environment. You know, match it up with structural engineering, architecture, that sort of stuff. So it's a bit of a switch in mentality in the way how we deal with these things because if you look back to you know all the most of the fires how they've been oh the, the issues with fire safety is because we have not really um what drives the change perhaps is not fire safety so we are in a very in an industry that is moving very quickly because of environmental yeah. reasons you know we need to <clears throat> fulfill a demand in in um buildings that's you know is moving very quickly and we kind of forgot or we forget about the fundamentals or the principles of fire safety that perhaps we just leave on the back so um i guess that's in essence you know one of the things that same um, affects the way we're dealing with fire safety in different jurisdictions yeah and because in the uk we are you know when it happened, we are pushed to to move quicker than the rest of the world. Yeah, because we've got a massive great disaster on our hands. That's we? right. So we've got to deal with it quickly. Um, I've got a great question for you. Yeah. If you were to pit, if you imagine you've got a twenty-story block of flats uh, and you're on the fifteenth, you're buying a flat on the fifteenth floor, anywhere in the world, they've all buildings have been built using the prescriptive codes of in those countries. Where would you buy? And built properly. And built properly. Yeah. Where would you buy? I mean, if it is prescriptive. That's the thing. Like, um, some countries might have a prescriptive um, side in the building code, right? Uh, that might follow to the letter, and they will have processes and, 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 yeah. and ways to deliver those buildings. Um, do you know what? From going through, one of the things that I've realized that's by being in the UK. We are here in the UK a lot well, pre much more prepared than other countries to deliver pacifier protection, for example. Yeah, we have certification yeah. schemes. We have an industry that's kind of getting prepared for it. Yeah. So I would say in the UK. Cool. Well, there you go, Russ Timpson. <laughs> There's the answer. answer. But I yeah. think that's really interesting because if you're... And, and I, do you know what? I would agree with you. I think my choice might have been more about the view. Might have said, <laughs> what am I looking out of my 15-story window? Yeah. <laughs> you know, actually, I choose the um, the Copacabana. Um, but you know, I think it's that that's testament, and I think that that that's the sort of thing we need to be focusing on. Is that I actually don't think our regulations and our standards are in crisis. I just think that 
the fire industry is being blamed for for something that happened. And ultimately, I don't think it was a fire industry problem. I think the fire industry are going to be part of the solution. But ultimately, most of the fires that we've seen aren't because something fire safety has happened. It's because it's fundamentally been either built wrong. It's designed wrong. Or it's been well, designed not wrong. Not even designed or wrong. Or materials might yeah. have been procured That's or scripted badly. Um, workmanship. You know, and probably a lot of the fire engineering strategies you read, I think half the problem is that most clients don't take the fire engineer beyond stage four. Yeah. We don't have as-built fire strategies undertaken. We don't have a competent fire engineer that looks at the building when it's finished and says, I've, I've looked at my, my initial assessment at, at Reba stage four and you've modified the building in X way and I don't think it's safe. You now need to do X. I don't think we go... I mean, more are... A lot more companies are thinking about that now, particularly construction companies. But this isn't because the fire industry was bad. It wasn't because your average fire alarm contractor was wrong or your average fire extinguisher contractor was wrong um, or a fire risk assessor. I mean, when you look at Grenfell Tower, the fire risk assessor didn't go anywhere near that building after it had been reclad. And we've we've had conversations about, you know, even if they did, would anyone have listened to them anyway? We've all got our opinions they, on they that. They probably wouldn't have done. This was what, what one of the things that... Um... Judith Hackett came out with was the race to the bottom, which is yeah, such exactly. an apt phrase that describes the, the spiraling sort of, um, f for example, f um, fire risk assessment companies yeah. undercutting each other with cheaper and cheaper. Yeah. Same with this construction undercut. Absolutely. I mean, you've got companies where that... you have to just in order to compete, you, you know, otherwise you don't get a chance. Yeah. And you've got companies undercutting each other, cut, 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 cut. But in the same way in the fire safety industry, wages are going up, 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 up. So that that is a really difficult yeah. thing to deal with. Um, I but... think even now, the fire engineering industry is booming. Um and yep. obviously, everyone still needs fire risk assessments. Yet, even now, the fire risk assessment industry still still seems to be a race to the bottom in terms of yeah. competition. Yeah, you, you, you can't get quality in, in no. anything. But everyone's buying volume. It, it, though, it, it's the, the iPhone. Yeah. It's the iPhone approach, isn't it? If people will pay a grand for an iPhone because actually it will last them a year for, or three two. years. Yeah, a couple of years, but. You want the quality of the software and all that that comes with it. You, yeah. you, you could get a, a phone for 100 quid that would still make calls and probably get you on the internet, but people want the quality. So if you want the quality, you've got to pay for it. Yeah. You've got to pay for it. But people are paying more for a phone than they are for a fire risk assessment. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is fundamentally ridiculous, is right? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, we've got probably more questions for Mario. Um I suppose one's the... So it says, to what extent do you think that commonly held media perceptions conflict with the actual building regulations and requirements in the UK? So this is where you've got news talking about fires and situations, things like the fire alarm didn't sound... Sprinklers didn't... There wasn't sprinklers installed. Yeah, exactly. Do you think there's a conflict between what the media understand of building regulations and what the building regulations actually are? Yeah, but I think that's Good. A, next question. I mean, <laughs> but I think that's a problem worldwide. It's not Is just it? here in the UK. Yeah, I mean, just a misunderstanding of fire safety. I mean, when you look up, you look back as to how fire safety was dealt for years was just you know through the architects designing yeah. fire strategies, right? Yeah. So it was always embedded within the standards and building regulations, so no one really talked about it because it will come through you know yeah. the architectural design. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that we have or we face not only here in the UK, but globally uh, uh, problems with understanding fire safety. So yeah. for the media, for the layman's not to understand exactly what they're saying, it's just 
but nothing surprised me. I think we'll all agree there's nothing more frustrating than something happening and you go on the news and you've got some so-called expert or getting pop, it completely or pop, wrong. <laughs> or pop star getting it completely wrong. Yeah. And still spouting it live on well, the it's, news. It's yeah. almost like we need some kind of open uh, dialogue where we can get experts on to ask them the questions. I reckon uh, we have the actual experts from the TV on. I think they'd be really... The, the thing that I love, right, when the TV's on and the news is happening and you've got some guy on his soapbox on TV talking about fire safety, my phone always... I get a little vibrate on my phone. <laughs> I open it up and Mario sent me a text message saying, who is this idiot? Because <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know who they are yet. But obviously we all know who they are, right? We do, yeah. And it's the same people day in, day out. Um... The, the last question, I think, Mario, which I, th- you know, we, you you and I are acutely aware um, of it, is um, talking about, you know, to what extent do you think duty holders within building regulations, i.e., the client, principal um, contractor, principal designer, etc., will be affected by the upcoming building safety reform? Well, they will definitely be more explicit in terms of what their their obligations will be. Yeah. Um, how that transfer into, you know, what actually happens on the day-to-day um, process of fire safety is still, I think, it's a bit unknown. Yeah. You know, there's a little bit of uh, matching contracts with um, obligations under building regulations. Yeah. You know, the, the CM and MC contracts, you know, match to principal contractor yeah. kind of obligations. Is Who's taking the liability? Who's taking the liability from a contract perspective? As opposed to from a legal perspective, how do we fill the gap where, you know, perhaps the contract says something and doesn't match or, or fulfill the obligations under building regs? Yeah. I think that's, yeah, I think that's one of the biggest um, questions that are carried by the, yeah. the the recommendations from. I think one of my bit the biggest learning curves for me is is actually having an appreciation for the fact that the fire safety industry actually doesn't understand the different types of construction contract that exist. <laughs> no. They don't people say, oh, isn't D and B stupid? And you sort of <laughs> you sort of then say, well, to what extent do you think D and B stupid? And they go, I will be honest, I don't know any more than the sentence I just said. <laughs> you know, and you know, what's the difference between an MC contract and a CM contract? And they say I didn't even know there were other contracts. You know, there's this, there's a complete lack of understanding about well, how buildings actually get designed and built. I just think you also, if you look at the terms of liability in like you know of a build, who's taken liability for yeah. design? Ultimately, it's always kind of ended with the architect who's taken the liability for the design. But they've now you've now introduced obviously the principal designer. Yeah, but they're not. They're like they're not the actual designer. They're just the person taking the flak for the design. Well, they are, but they're still not taking liability for it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that I think is probably a very misleading term, principal designer, because your lead designer, your lead consultant, is still normally the architect, and the liability sits with them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think there's a bit of confusion around that at the yeah. point of the time. And I think that that's, that's where the building safety reform is really going to nail down yeah, who specifically on every project is responsible and to what extent. And I think, you know, from Mary and I's perspective, we're looking at CM contracts. We're not convinced at the moment in the new world, a CM contract actually, we actually think the legal responsibilities under a CM contract will be in excess of the actual contract you've signed anyway. Um, And at the moment, you're sort of, you're dancing around that. Mm. Um, And that, you know, with with the the building safety reform, which is ultimately the implementation of the Hackett um, report, basically, it's going to be categoric who is responsible for what. Because after Grenfell Tower... They just don't know who to point at. 
Like, whose yeah. fault is it? And there's no one, because it's no one knows who's responsible, you know, and we get that every day, don't we? So think, if the contracts don't match the, the obligations under the building regulations, then yeah. you're going to have gaps. Yeah, and I think it's gone right. the other way at the moment. They're getting, everyone's having some collateral warranties and this, like, providing insurance. So they've, everyone's now throwing yeah. their insurance into the pot and their warranties. And we wonder why the insurance industry's gone. Yeah. I'm not insuring you. And everyone, like, this is a big stat. So if actually something happened, they've got to sift through all this and work out who the hell is actually responsible for this. Yeah, exactly. And the answer is no one knows. No one knows. Mario, Laura Lederman, thank you very much for joining us. I have a feeling that um, this episode my girlfriend might actually listen to just to hear uh, Mario's Latin, uh, yeah. uh, dusky Latin, Amer- Latin American uh, accent. accent. If only she could see him. Well, in fairness, she 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 she's very polite about our podcast. I'm not convinced she ever actually listens to them. I don't know about Kirsty. I don't know if she listens to your. I, I I no. My wife lives in this wonderful bubble where technology hasn't affected her yet, mm. so she she wouldn't know how to listen to a podcast. I don't even tell my wife what I do. <laughs> she doesn't even know you're a fire engineer. No, no. She thinks you're a busker. Probably. Well, Lou, Lou pretends to listen, but I'm not convinced she does. She always says, "Oh, it's very 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 good. funny, very." Ing- and I'll, I'll, we'll find out now. Yeah, absolutely. I say, what did you think of um, that Scottish bloke, Mario? (laughs) (laughs) Mario McTaggart, thank you very much. We're going to do a little quiz now, if you're willing to take part. Mario, so we've got our 90 seconds general knowledge quiz. Okay, Um, we've tried to include as many um, American questions as we can. Because that's the website that Dave gets them from. (laughs) Yeah, because that's not where you're from either. And and what I would say is someone who may not have listened to the podcast, in fact, you have listened to a podcast, you listened to one yesterday. Um, and I got thumbs up emoji, which is really good. <laughs> um, but obviously, the quiz is not sensible, so you have or to sensical disconnect your <laughs> mind, and you just have to go with the game. So Anthony Robson last week scored the grand total zero. Thank you for so, reminding me. So, so don't That's worry right. too much. So the bar is not that high. Yeah, you're fine. Good. Okay, okay. you t- you tell me when we're going, Tom. Right, 90 ready. Seconds. Ninety seconds starts 90 seconds. in three, two, one, go. In Wisconsin, it's against the law to serve apple pie without what? <laughs> apple pie without um Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Whiskey? No. Cheese. cheese. Famous yes. for cheese. Sorry. It's illegal. Are they famous for cheese? Apparently. Yeah, they wear pie. cheese on their head. Yeah. For well, the yeah, American Wisconsin. football, don't they? Yeah, they wear the cheese hats, don't they? Okay. I feel like we're wasting Mario's time. Oh, we paused here. it, don't worry. I paused it. And go. It's illegal in Oxford, Ohio for a woman to disrobe where? In the street? In front of a man's picture. <laughs> <laughs> it's against the law to lend what to your neighbour in Denver, Colorado? Gun. A vacuum cleaner. After 6pm in Newark, it's illegal to sell what without a doctor's note? <laughs> uh, aspirin, don't know. Ice cream. Ice cream. It's illegal in Maryland to frighten what? I love watching Mario's face. <laughs> He's really trying to work it out. I know. Um, what must alive, you Alive, alive... Um, Yep. Entities, I don't know. Bear? Nearly. Nearly. A pigeon. A pigeon. (laughs) In Washington, it is illegal to ride what sort of horse? Are there many type of horse? I don't know. Um, 
I don't know, the um, president's horse? An ugly horse. <laughs> <laughs> boop, 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 boop. That's it. Okay, can we just top up Mario's scores? So and I it... think there is a definitely a, um, a fire engineering precedent being set in the last two episodes. <laughs> two fire engineers, and between them they got zero. <laughs> Has there ever been anyone? Yeah, someone we had got, someone like, got two, two ones. Yeah, two, two is the, the highest on the leaderboard. Far out, yeah. Yeah. Far out. They is were like, the Chile- is that uh, Australian? That's thing? Australian. Yeah. Far yeah, out. But they were, a lot, it's, they were a lot easier, their questions. Don't worry, Mario. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, next week we're going to ask Tom the questions. Awesome. And we're going to take them from all the questions that we've asked in the series so far to see if he was actually listening to any of them. Excellent. Okay, well, I look forward to that. Uh, thank you um, for coming, Mario and Anthony. And uh, see you next week, Dave. Tom, we don't finish a show like that. We Why need not? To, we need to tell people where to to write to us if they want to complain about what Mario said. <laughs> um, so you can write to the Chilean consulate um, <laughs> if you've got any problems about um, uh, Mario. But you can write to us. They've got uh, bigger problems over there. Yeah, they days, have. So. Yeah, they've definitely got ACM on buildings as well. We've seen them on fire and supermarkets. Um, so, um, yeah, you can email us at Dave and Tom at theopenfirepodcast.com. You can ring us on a telephone number or you can find us <laughs> through our website theopenfirepodcast.com Excellent. I'll see you next week, Tom. Yes, you will. Ta-ta. <laughs> <laughs>